month's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Tracer. And I am Corbin Heller. And welcome to the show. Today, we are going to be talking about the 1987 film Angel Heart and the 1999 film The Boondock Saints. Corwin Heller, where would you like to start? In Louisiana um, or Boston? I feel like I want to start with Louisiana. All right. Angel Heart, which has the distinction of being our first X-rated film. <laughs> um, Did was... not know that. Oh, that adds yeah, 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 yeah. a lot of context. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the film was directed by Alan Parker, written by William Hjortsberg from his novel Falling Angel and also the screenplay by Alan Parker. The film stars Mickey Rourke, our second Mickey Rourke film, pre-plastic surgery Mickey Rourke, uh, Robert De Niro and Lisa Bonet. The film had an estimated budget of $17 million and a gross worldwide, um, a worldwide gross, I should say, I have it backwards, of about $17.1 million. Um, a little bit tough to make all your money back when it's an X-rated film, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine many theaters uh, were, were big on that. The tagline was, it will scare you to your very soul. But yeah, okay, cool. Uh, Fine with that. I'm, uh, I'm not a big fan, but I'll, I'll take it, I guess. For, for, it's for hard. The, it's hard to be picky when we never get anywhere close to decent. That's what I was about to say. For the scale that we're operating with for uh, taglines, that is perfectly acceptable. Uh, the film is about a private investigator who is hired by a man who calls himself Louis Cipher to track down a singer named Johnny Favorite, but the investigation takes an unprecedented, sorry, an unexpected and somber turn. Uh, this was my film, so I will get us started. Uh, it's a wild ride of a movie. It's a fascinating film because it operates um, structurally much like a like a noir film would. So I, I guess this would be a neo-noir film, a, a more modern-day example of, of film noir. Um, and it's, you know, it's got all those kind of beats. It's, it's eerie. It, it's quiet it has a lot of interesting visuals to it that uh lean very much so into lending itself to, like the mystic feeling that the film has as well as introducing very clear examples of um religion into the film for you know i guess one dramatic effect as well as uh lending itself to the ending of the, of, of the movie which we'll certainly be getting to um <clears throat> I think Mickey Rourke shines in this movie, which is weird to say because it is such a wild film. And Robert De Niro is delightfully creepy. Um, it's also funny to see Lisa Bonet in this because I had to look up how old she was because it felt super gross to see Lisa Bonet get so fucking naked because she looks so fucking young. Um, she was... Uh, she was born in 87. She was 19 when the film was was being made. So I guess don't feel too creepy, but it's still pretty creepy. Uh, what's funny, though, is that this was in the middle of her run on The Cosby Show. So if you were a, a fan of uh, The Cosby Show and you're like, Lisa Bonet, 
from the Cosby show. We should go see her in a movie. You're in for a treat. You're in for a real rough go of things. Um, I'm excited to talk about the actual plot of this movie with you. So I will just turn it over to you for your initial impression of the film. Uh, man, I. In the first five minutes, I had to look up who the damn actor was that was playing the main character because he felt so unbelievably familiar. Like I knew who this person was. I've seen him a million times. I just couldn't picture a name to go with him. And when I looked and saw that this was Mickey Rourke, I, I didn't, I still don't know how to get over the wrestler that I was picturing in the back edges of my mind every time he showed up on screen and it completely tainted this film for me. <laughs> I just could not equate how this man was the same guy working the deli counter in the wrestler. And I just could not take him seriously. It was killing me because it was so childish, but I couldn't do anything to stop it. I mean, it is <sighs> wild to come up with the Mickey Rourke that we have today and then to go back and see what he looked like because it is, I mean, it's two different people. It, mm -hmm. it, it's it is not the same man. Um, it's wild. But I I guess let's just go ahead and dive in. So the film takes place uh, relatively soon post World War Two, 1955. And Mickey Rourke's character, Harry Angel, plays a New York City P.I. who gets um I don't know, a contract, so to speak, from Robert De Niro's character, a man named Louis Cipher, um, to track down a singer known as Johnny Favorite. And this brings um, Harry Angel or uh, Mickey Rourke's character uh, all around, starting from a mental hospital in upstate New York where he runs into a, a, a doctor who used to work at that hospital who ultimately commits suicide and then takes him down to Louisiana to track down a woman who once knew Johnny favorite. So I'm trying to think of the best way to kind of tackle this one um, because like, all right, let's put it this way. Let's skip to the end. <laughs> I think that might make it a little bit easier to talk about. What do you think? What do you think? I don't see why not. I don't think it would make it worse. Yeah, just because I'm I'm trying to think of how to discuss, you know, the the twists and turns that the movie takes without the context of the ending to color it. I I don't I think it would be more difficult than it's worth. So. Basically, the film ends with Harry Angel having essentially figured out that a lot of the cabalistic, um, like voodoo, insan religion, religious insanity that he's been uncovering is 
true and like works to the point that the the body he is inhabiting the body of Harry Angel is just a husk that the man Johnny favorite placed his soul within to escape a deal he had made with the devil the devil found this out because that was his goal was to you know we had an agreement that I take your soul uh, in exchange for making you a famous musician, so I'm gonna do it, you fucking asshole. Um, and hired Harry to basically discover it on his own, so that he would have full understanding of who he truly was and why things were about to be happening to him. Um, he was just being a dick. Well, I think it's an interesting. <laughs> no, I, I think it actually makes a lot of sense because if the devil was to have come. Oh, by the way, uh, Lewis Cipher or a.k.a. Lucifer. Fuck, that's the stupidest part of this movie, honestly, I, for me. Um, yeah, surprise, surprise. He's the devil. Um, if the devil had just come and claimed uh, Angel's soul. Right from the jump. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure it would have been impactful for the devil because then Angel wouldn't have realized who he was. So in his mind, it would be this like unjust thing that is befalling him instead of what the devil did do, which was not just tell Angel who he really was, because then you can just go, ah, this guy's fucking crazy. The, by sending him on the journey to do it, he also has, he, he uncovers the truth for himself which is a more meaningful way of self-actualization. I felt as if uh, Mickey Rourke was playing this role as if he thought he was 1987 Tom Cruise. And it completely killed between that and seeing again, six-year-old Mickey Rourke, um, it completely killed any, not compassion, but um, I just, I couldn't see him as the character he was trying to be. I couldn't see past the cloak of this is a worse Tom Cruise impersonation that really would have been great with Tom Cruise. And so I'm left disappointed with Mickey Rourke, despite you genuinely viewing this as a a positive performance a great performance i just couldn't see it see that's so interesting i i would completely disagree because when i think of tom cruise performances i think of a very like chiseled chin up upright kind of polished personality like very very Mm -hmm. rarely do we see tom cruise harried and disheveled even in films where he is genuinely his character is genuinely struggling with something like few good men or um, Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise is really bad at playing guy on his last fucking hope. You know, this, this to me played so much like the other side of the coin from a few good men except you drop this coin in a sewer and it landed one side down. It was just like the dirty, 
not quite as nice. Like he is a character that's like getting thrown into shrimp boats and getting the shit kicked out of him by a dog and a few good men. He's this prim and polished uh, Navy lieutenant who's a lawyer. Right. It yeah, felt I... very different, but similar in a way where it's the same coin. I I thoroughly enjoyed Mickey Rourke's performance in this because it, it felt it felt to me like he was in a Sergio Leone movie <laughs> where he was like sweating the entire time. Like somehow he was sweating when it was winter in New York City. And I was like, this is great. Because he, he was disheveled for a long time. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which I think was so well suited for the character, because if you think about what he is trying to accomplish or like who this man is, is he is quite literally the soul of another man trapped in the body of someone else, unbeknownst to him on a mad dash flee from the devil. And so to have him be kind of like constantly, I don't know, I don't want to say nervous, but seemingly anxious or, or, or a little bit frenetic really served the character well. Because it's like, yeah, this guy has clearly been through quite a lot. So, but anyway, anywho. So now I guess let's talk a little bit about the the twists and turns of the film, starting with when we initially meet the kind of the first step on this journey, which was the doctor um, at the, the, the psych ward, right. Who's mm-hmm. hooked on uh, what was it, like morphine or some shit. Um, and Mickey work, you know, is trying to treat as a lead who ultimately kills himself. And when the doctor kills himself, it's kind of a fascinating moment because it introduces the idea that what is happening is like, quite literally deathly sinister but we have no information as to why with the retrospect that or the hindsight that it's because this doctor is an accomplice in this deal with the devil scenario it's very clear why he would be so petrifyingly afraid of the consequences of mickey rourke coming back around um but without having it you know it is such a wild moment in what is, I think, a really like well done, suspenseful series of events. Like when Mickey Rourke positions himself in the kitchen for when the lights get turned on by the doctor, I loved it. I was like, this is the part we never see. We always see the guy walk into the room and get startled. We never see the guy like what he did right before he got in that chair. I loved that scene. <laughs> It had, for me, it had too much of the mid-80s action, like, cliches in just some of the mannerisms of Mickey Rourke's character, like, throughout that scene. It just felt almost corny the way he was doing it. It just, it. listen, I am not saying I think it is objectively corny. I am saying subjectively with everything else going on as I am watching this film so far with just shit flying all over the place in my head, it felt corny and just 
added another layer that muddied everything. No problem. Um, also, for brevity's sake, there's a lot that this movie covers, but we're going to go do, I guess, probably a little bit more broad strokes because there are lots of, of you know, turns to this film, which to its credit, we've talked about this with a few other like mystery movies that we've done in the past. The film does a very good job of doling out information. It 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 is not so much like constant confusion and then a massive info dump at one point that helps kind of like push along a lot. He Mickey Rourke is constantly uncovering bits and pieces of, you know, what the ultimate reveal is going to be as the film goes on so that there is always an intrigue in the next part of the case. It does take its little breaks, which ultimately do end up coming back around to being important. But the film does do a very good job of doling out the information in a way that helps keep the pacing up of the film. Uh, at least that, that's how I felt. Did you feel the same? I do not hear you. Jesus, I'm a mess. I absolutely agree. I think it almost started a little slow or it felt a little slow, but the pace that it started just unraveling the string picked up and found a nice tempo. And it was just a steady, even stream of information throughout the film. Yeah. Like once we get to New Orleans is when it really like kicks itself into gear. Yes. So I guess to that effect, let, let's skip up to, to there. Um, so he goes down to New Orleans and meets up with a woman named Margaret Cruzmark, who had been um, running like a palm reading psychic kind of place, um, who is very cold to uh, Harry Angel. I, I, dude, the name Harry Angel, not sticking in my head. <laughs> It is no, not it, not staying there. I don't think it rolls off the tongue well. It does not. Um, but whatever. So <laughs> she, uh, it, you know, divulges n- n- not a lot of information. Just she says that, you know, like Johnny's dead and um, it, uh, Harry learns when his birthday is like really small stuff. And then she dies. Right? Get, her heart literally cut out of her and left on a table. Um, and that being very casual about it. super duper cash, very cash. Um, that being the second death of the film, it start, starts to instigate to us. that There is this pattern of, Oh, he's going to meet somebody. He's going to do a little chit chat and then they will be dead. And hers was gruesome to a point that the first death wasn't really. The first death, because it was suicide, you go, ah, okay. He, this doctor felt bad about it. But when Cruzmark gets a whole board in her chest, you go, ah, okay. No, no, no. Something is afoot. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I was expecting them to be a little more. Uh, I don't, I guess I wouldn't be expecting them to be overt yet. It was more of, that was very much not something I had thought was going to be a possibility going into this film, not knowing its rating, uh, apparently. And boy, that just was like, 
I looked away for a second, looked back, and it was just all there on the screen and just completely punches you in the face. Fortunately, we do get spared the visuals of the next death, which is a guitarist who worked in Johnny Favorite's band, uh, Toot Sweet. Um, he shares a little bit more information with Harry. Um, really, he doesn't have that much information, but Toot Sweet <laughs> apparently gets murdered with his cock and balls shoved down his own mouth. And then I guess I think he had his throat slit. Um, or he was suffocated, something like that. He but, was uh, autoerotically asphyxiated by with his own cock and balls. Yeah, with his own cock and balls. And I just, I have to say, the way that these lines are delivered and the way that they discuss this dick and balls at any point in the film is fucking hilarious. Well, that because, is, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's it's nothing other than just the wildest vocabulary when referring to a cock and balls as you're going to find. Well, no. And it is like the weird part of the movie is that there are these random interjections from the fucking like keystone cops oh, who, who come in, who just appear in Harry's um, apartment or the hotel rooms that he's staying in to like recap the deaths that occurred the night before. <laughs> and you know, they're really not necessary, like at all. Um, but it very is very campy. It's very like, OK, this probably would have played in the 1940s, but is not playing in the 80s, even though it's about the 50s. Hey, this feels very 1940s when the rest of this film feels very 1987. So I just can't stick with it. Honestly, like if those scenes took place in black and white and had more of like the kind of like awkward Orwellian or Orson Welles Ian uh, like Dutch angles to it, it would probably mm. feel a lot less <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> but those scenes come off as kind of goofy. Yeah. Uh, along the way, he also Harry, um, I want to say. I always want to say Harry Hole because I forget the name <laughs> of the movie, but there's a movie where Harry, it's, I think it's another mystery novel series that got turned into a movie at some point. Um, Harry Hole. And I keep wanting to say that for this, but it's not. Harry Angel um, meets a girl named Epiphany Proudfoot. This is uh, the, um, I was about to say Janelle Monet. That's not true. It's Lisa Bonet. I'm having a tough time with names right now. Uh, okay. It's usually me. Did you expect that Lisa Bonet was going to be his daughter? No. <laughs> yeah. So essentially uh. she's like raising a kid and she's like a part of this, you know, like uh, voodoo cabal kind of thing going on in the forest where Toot Sweet also was a, a part of that community. Um, Harry Angel has a connection with her which ends up with a romantic encounter that is graphic in multiple ways. Yeah. And uh, they preempt this with her declaring that she is 17, which does not make it better. I, I always have a big problem with that. And this was a big problem I have with like a show like, uh, like euphoria. Like I, I am, watch the first two seasons and if if there's a season three i don't think i'm going to be a part of it um because it's one thing 
for all the actors to be over 18 and have graphic nudity, but it's another thing for them all to be over 18, but they're playing 16, 17 year olds and they're displaying their nudity with a level of supposed attraction, which feels gross. Like that's gross. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to look at uh, Sydney Sweeney's gigantic tits um, and you tell me that she's a 16-year-old and feel good about that. Like, that's disgusting. And that is much the same for... And that's why I had to look up because uh, I felt double gross. <laughs> I felt real, real bad mm -hmm. looking at Lisa Bonet's tits in this movie because I was like, not only do you say you're 17, I believe it. Like, you look... Because she, she's very svelte. You know, she's got a very mm -hmm. young face. She could have been 17. Luckily, yeah. luckily, we're not creepy and she's 19, but it's still gross. It's it doesn't make it feel OK. No. Um. Yeah, she basically she says that, like, Johnny favorites, her dad, uh, that's that's her connection because the woman that was Johnny favorites girlfriend that brought Harry Angel down to Louisiana had died. And Lisa Benet revealed that that was her mother and John favor was her dad. Um which you could make some some claim to say that that is the the connection that brought those two together and the misplaced affection was brought out with uh, sexual intimacy. But no matter what, uh, gross. <laughs> no matter what, yuck. No matter what, uh, I do not feel invested. She probably had the most gruesome death that we saw on screen, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, one thing, the time frame of that death was a little bit confusing to me because so they pound, they hump. Mm -hmm. um, he gets up the next morning. She's taking a bath. The police come in, do their police, you know, their Keystone Cop routine and mm -hmm. then two step out the room. And then later on, you know, Harry comes back to the hotel and she is donezo. She is murdered. And the cops are like, why'd you come back to the scene of the crime? And she, and he goes, that's my daughter. Um, <laughs> but, and then, you know, there's flashbacks <laughs> to her death, but the cops were there earlier and saw her in the tub. So we know that that wasn't just like a, a hallucination of Harry angels. Like she was alive <laughs> in the morning. So when did she die? listen i couldn't i it was meant to be a very serious conversation between the keystone cops and uh our boy the wrestler uh when he returns to the room but i audibly laughed out loud i couldn't hold it back i have no idea i honestly after that i did not think closely enough about the continuity of what we've seen to piece it together i i can't answer that question and it was also confusing because they addressed her being there as like uh well is they said something like now now at least you have a uh, i understand why you'd sleep late or something like that because he kept sleeping in and they're like Super ah gross. you got you got some good ass last night so that's why like they acknowledged that she was there she was alive and she was attractive and then a number of hours later she is deceased whatever um 
the final bits of information that really piece the whole ending together before there is the 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 final debrief with the devil himself uh comes from margaret Kuz cruzmark's dad whom harry runs into at what looked like an illegal horse racetrack thing um who essentially reveals to him what happened which was as i had recapped a little bit earlier on johnny um liebling i I think it was something like that uh yeah johnny liebling wanted to become famous sold his soul to the devil um robert johnson style if you're familiar with americana music um also represented in the film crossroads with uh ralph macchio um anyway he sold his soul to the devil to become a famous musician was successful became the hit artist johnny favorite um wanted to escape the deal he had made with the devil so him and margaret along with i i guess um the woman that he was dating somebody proudfoot basically kidnapped a soldier who was home at the end of the war, put Johnny's soul into his body. The man that we now understand is Harry angel and put Mm -hmm. the soul of Harry angel in Johnny's body and then killed him. Essentially trying to trick the devil into thinking that he possessed the soul of the man, Harry, uh, Johnny favorite. And that the deal was complete. Therefore Johnny in Harry's body could live out the rest of his life and then enjoy his afterlife without having to run in with that big nasty old devil man. Yes. When that got revealed, how did you, what was your reaction to the unfolding of the film? Uh, as it was happening. No, I didn't. (laughs) (sighs) It was like, yeah, it, it all makes a ton of sense. It's all right there. It was it was laid out very nicely when it just the coincidence of everything that's happening is like, okay, he is a guy who was fucked up in the head. There's a bunch of voodoo, war, parades, New Year's Eve. What the fuck is going on? What what kind of movie is this? I did not think I was watching like Constantine. Oh, that's it. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's so lame. Yeah, I'm a lame guy. I have lame reasons. I thought it was great. I also I tend to really enjoy like creepy religious shit in that way. I I I thoroughly mm. enjoy some level of because I think religion lends itself very well to um like paranormal horror because that's essentially what most religion is <laughs> most religion if you lived a single story of it you would never recover emotionally <laughs> if you lived a single biblical tale you would never shut up about it and you would be changed for the worse for if you saw a man make water into wine you would question your reality till the day you departed Oh if, yes. If you saw a man split oceans in two, you would you would fear water for the rest oh, of your you're living going life. To, you're going to fear water, and then at some point, either before this happened or after this happened, you're going to be on a boat alone for 40 days and 40 nights. 
Or you would be constantly wondering when some man would come along and just tear you asunder. Like, if he could do that to an ocean, he can do it to you. Um, I like, I never once thought of the thought of God ripping me in two because of his ability to separate water. Holy fuck. That is a movie or series or game waiting to happen. And god damn, that looks perfect. And that's why I do thoroughly in- enjoy like these religious bents, especially because there's so much pre-built in motivation from what we understand these religious characters to be like we understand you know what the the devil's wants or some level of like the devil's powers because as americans we grow up with an understanding of you know christian religion because it's hard-coded into you at at, at fucking public schools so it 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 like does some interesting table setting for you already, and then I think the film does a very effective job introducing some of the other less mainstream religious views that go along with you know the the voodoo practices that they have down um, that are represented as being down in in Louisiana. Um, additionally, I like the fact that the devil's work in this movie is not malicious. <laughs> Which is also like a cool take on it. Like the devil's not doing anything to be an asshole. He's just doing his job, which I think is also a much better representation of Satan in a film, which isn't like a Loki style. I'm just a a mean little scamp. It's like a guy approached me, wanted to make a transaction. I said, okay, I held up my end. It's now time for him to hold up his. That is it. There is nothing um, untoward about it. He is seek- he's getting revenge along the way by killing all the people, essentially, mm-hmm. I guess, via uh, Harry Angel, killing all the people that he interacts with. But even that is like, honestly, kind of understandable given the situation, which sounds insane. But yeah. It makes me wonder who does the devil go to when he needs a lawyer on retainer? What law firm does the devil go to? Well, he, uh, he had that, that one lawyer that he, that he, um, he was working with when, when he contracted out Harry angel. And then at the end of the, the movie, um, Mickey Rogue's like, what a ha- what about what about your lawyer? Was he real? And um the devil's like, oh, he's real. He's dead now because I fucking killed the shit out of him. But he was real. But but is it a law firm in hell? Do they have an office there? I is that ass- where he found I this guy? Assume- or did the devil lay this all out in front of a human lawyer to get human like Louisiana state? legal action i would assume it was a regular human lawyer from a regular human law firm who was convinced merely by the sight of money given sparse given sparse details just because i mean that is what the devil does also to harry like every time harry is like this is way too hot i don't want to do this i think i'm done i usually just you know i don't even 
put my life on the line like this. I usually just find people or take pictures of people cheating. And every time he does that, the devil goes, I'll give you like 10 grand. And Harris like, yeah, all right, I'll keep going. Oh, money. I suppose. <laughs> I'll give it to you for money. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. So I, we talked about this one for a while. Let's get to final ratings and reviews and we'll jump over to our other movies since we do have two to talk about for the day. Um, sure, sure, my sure. movie. So I'll start. I think this is such an interesting film. I thoroughly enjoy a good mystery movie, which, which um, I think this does a very good job of. It is very graphic. It is not for everybody. I really forgot how graphic this movie was, um, but it is very interesting. I think Mickey Rourke gives a great performance. I think Robert De Niro toes a pretty fine line between being campy and being spooky that I think he generally toes pretty well. Um, and I really enjoyed the filmmaking of it. I think it's a very satisfying film to look at. I think the suspense is handled and negotiated very, very well. Um, you know, Alan Parker is a guy who's made a lot of really good movies and was nominated for best director twice by the Academy Awards. Um, he knows what he's doing. Um, I will give this a solid four, four stars for me. Um, Robert De Niro has 10 individual Coke nails. It is 1987. It is also 1947. Uh, I t- two and a half. Scathing I just wasn't feeling. Oh, God. Roger Ebert is rolling in his grave. Did he so, like I don't movie? know what he's up to. Is he alive? No, he is. He has been dead. Okay. Yeah, he has been dead a long Uh, time. If you if you ask me to guess a decade in which he would be if he were alive, I don't I don't think I'm getting anywhere close. Because you have me wondering, Roger Ebert gave this film three and a half. Okay, right there in the middle. That'll play. By right there in the middle, slightly not in the middle, but oh no 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 right right by me right 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 by where I gave it. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get into the next film we have to talk about. That is 1999's The Boondock Saints. Um, yeah, so uh, Boondock Saints was written and directed by Troy Duffy because oh, of course it was. The film stars Willem Dafoe. What else? What else has he directed? Um genuinely just boondock saints it's it, he did the boondock saints he did the boondock uh, saints stew two still boons st- still still docking um <laughs> boondock and, saints two electric boogaloo uh he did a movie that came out two years ago called guest house that as far as i can tell is horrible oh it starts paulie shore okay yeah it's bad Ooh. it's bad um like literally, he he wrote Boondock Saints. He wrote Boondock Saints two ten years oh, he later. He wrote them too. Oh, he wrote and directed. I wrote and directed them. Oh man, yeah. Are these original scripts? Are these original yes. screenplays? Yes, they are. Thank God. Um, yeah, because a book <laughs> at would least be that's better contained. <laughs> so just to continue on, the film stars Willem Dafoe, Sean Patrick Flannery, and Norman Reedus. Um, the film had an estimated budget of uh six million dollars oh god and a cumulative worldwide gross of thirty thousand dollars holy shit really um from what i have read the film has allegedly made its money back since becoming kind of like a vod and um, dvd 
cult film. Yeah. Which is what allowed uh, Troy Duffy to make the sequel in 2009, um, 10 years after the original, because there was a, uh, a secondary success of the film, but in its theatrical run. Yeah, it it did, did not do well. Um, The film has no major Academy, no major awards, wins, nor nominations. The film is about two Irish Catholic brothers who become vigilantes and wipe out Boston's criminal underworld in the name of God. Corbin, this was your movie. You get us started. I'm sorry. You, you warned me what this film was. And I thought I had heard positive reviews of this film. And this is a fucking mess. I think there's a strong possibility a director and editor from just not 1999 I guess just whatever era that film was stuck in it just needs to leave I think someone could do something here but the editor should be shot into outer space yeah this was this was a rough edit something that you oh my you and I don't typically pick up on unless it's bad this was bad there is nothing greater than watching a film and noticing like, holy shit, like having that epiphany moment of like the way this is all flowing or like me not noticing how something transitioned, like seeing really good editing is like the best thing you can see. Cause you almost never do, but when you see it and it's bad, it is unwatchable. Ugh. So is that your is that your intro to the that's movie? that's all I okay. got. What else is there to say? This is a shit well, show. There's this a is lot a of complete it to say. and total fucking shit show. None of none of this movie makes a lick of sense. The film is wildly homophobic. Um, and there are only for a film that's mostly supposedly takes place in like the Irish Catholic part of Boston, which is so much of Boston. There are almost no Irish people in this movie barring the two lead characters, which is also a wild choice to make for a film that's supposed to take place in Boston. It's bad. It's so bad. It's a nutso movie that I honestly can't believe got made in the first place. Mm -hmm. So are you ready to dig in? No. God, no. But yes. I want to start with the fact that the beginning of the movie makes no fucking sense. So, all right. So I had not seen this movie since like early high school, like I'd said. And the mm-hmm. core the reason you probably heard good things about it is because I remember in high school, people could not shut the fuck up over how great they thought this movie was. Um, and I remember the first time I watched it, it was like, I've hated this movie ever since, which felt very reaffirming. So when it starts, because I don't have a good recollection of it. And it starts with like the the Catholic mass happening, and the 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 two mm-hmm. the two brothers. Um, what are their fucking names? Hold on. Uh, Norman Reedus, Con- Con- Connor and Murphy. Murphy is a first name. Connor and Murphy, um, dressed all in black with like the tattoos and the matching sunglasses and everything. Walking up to the gigantic statue of the Buddy Christ, kissing his feet and leaving 
And like someone made a comment that they, yeah, they made a comment about how the priest is finally getting it about like, I guess how cool those two dudes are. You'd say, oh, so they are currently vigilantes. No. No, they're not. Why did they do that? Who the fuck knows? Yeah. Um, I, this, this is a, you know, the scene in Batman three or not Batman, sorry, Spider-Man three with Tobey Maguire, where he's walking down the, the street after being infected by venom. And he thinks he's the coolest motherfucker in New York city. And he's the biggest dork in the world. That was this entire open. I, it, it was so lame. So lame. So lame. It, it, you're right, because it felt very high school. That That's really what it is. Oh, it felt, yeah. It felt very Again. like they might as well be walking down a hallway and the priest might as well have been like a nerd that they almost shoved into a locker, but then didn't because they're actually good guys. Yeah. <sighs> Woo. So... Basically, the plot of the film is these two guys who work at a butcher shop, which, might I add, was the worst. That's where the editing first really stuck out to me, because that montage was garbage. Very bad. I've I've never seen a montage that poorly put together and that poorly executed for understanding what the fuck was we were supposed to be taking away from its presentation because it was just cuts of them working at the butcher shop with i forget what the the outside i think the outs the other cuts were just exterior pans b-roll of the city of boston right uh if you say that i'll believe you no so love the fact that they introduced these two guys as having jobs working in a butcher shop and uh yeah never comes up again not at once <laughs> uh God. like they get into a fight with a butch woman at the the butcher's shop because of her accusations of sexism and you'd think like oh this will be a runner like mm-hmm. she is going to be a big part of it because she's a, like a, a big burly woman and this is a, an action movie so she's obviously going to be in it as a bruiser and their sexism will be something that is made clear to us that then gets resolved as they realize that yes they are sexist um, because they thought that this butch woman couldn't do anything and she is actually instrumental in whatever the task will be and then no no that that scene is like randomly plopped in and then never brought up again and then she kicks him in the nuts. Yeah. Why would why would she do that? That seems they, outlandish. Especially because that woman, like, she is an actress. That that's Dot Marie Jones. Um who yeah, she was nominated for three Emmys for for Glee. Um, like she she's an actress like she does stuff so also to have an actress not like that she's a huge actress but to have somebody with face recognition in that role leads me to believe that she probably had a bigger part in the movie at some point that just hit the editing room floor which again if that's what's making the cut uh, I don't know I, I have no answers yeah so 
was so annoyed by this film. I just, again, (laughs) just got to spit it out. I know. (laughs) So the film starts off with them at a bar on them at at a bar at St. Patrick's Day where they are two of the only five dudes there, which, dude, it is a bar that is open in Boston on St. Patrick's Day. And there's nobody there. What the fuck are we talking about? There's got to be some reason the Russians want to shut it down. But no, if if it's that undesirable, then why would the Uh, Russians want it in the first place? Clearly, this is must. This must be 10 miles outside of the city bounds because there's nobody there on St. Patrick's Day, which also they brought up for no payoff. Mm -hmm. Anyway, might I add? Was there any reason why the bartender had to have Tourette's? Absolutely none. Absolutely. Which is not even made clear in that initial encounter. It only gets made clear later on. Because, of course, why not? You would never need to touch on that. Because he was complaining about the fact that Baru is getting shut down and he keeps turning to his side to yell, fuck. And you go, oh, all right. Weird choice to be like this bizarrely frenetically angry about it. And then later on, you find out it's because he has Tourette's. <sighs> anyway, bars getting shut down because of Russians who conveniently show up that night to an empty bar in Boston on St. Patrick's Day. And what do the guys do who are just two dudes who live in Boston? They kick the shit out of those Russian guys. This leads to them getting jumped the next morning at their apartment. How did the Russians know they lived there? Who the fuck knows? The Russians. The Russians take one of the two brothers, handcuffing the other brother to a toilet, which he superhumanly rips out from the fucking ground, carries it up to the roof to see his brother um, in, in an execution style position with a gun to his forehead, drops the toilet on the head from five stories up onto a Russian man and then jumps five stories off of a building to land atop the other Russian man in an attempt to disarm him. And not only does not die, which he would have doesn't so much as break a bone. Five stories, five stories in the air jumps totally fine knocked unconscious for a little bit otherwise totally fine fuck you corwin are you there uh i muted myself because i was coughing and laughing so hard uh the toilet created magic voodoo specifically and that is the bridge for how one of these is actually the prequel to boondock saints that's all I got. That's all I got. Well, and you know, the toilet being magic is honestly a better explanation for what happens next. Because what happens next, so basically the, the guys in the second confrontation with the Russians kill them. And this movie is structured so bizarrely, which also ties back to the point Corin and I were making about the editing, in which the film is told partially backwards, where Willem Dafoe and another Keystone Cops show 
keeps showing up to crime scenes to deduce what happens. And then the film will show you what happens. Sometimes they do it in the other order where the crime will take place first and then Willem Dafoe and his gaggle of morons shows up. But it, it's one or the other. And so when you see the dead Russians, you'd think, oh, they killed them that night. And then when it cuts to them the next morning, getting jumped by the Russians again, it's confusing and lame. Anyway. Wildly confusing. And not effective. I Because that was the thing that I had to pause the movie to yell at my fiance about. <laughs> because I was so mad. Because the, the, the thing about doing that is we are constantly being told what happened and shown what happened and not like in VO the way that like Ocean's Eleven does it, where it is an explanation of events while they are visually unfolding. No, they unfold. You see it happen. You see the guy descend from the ceiling, spraying bullets. And in a later scene, Willem Dafoe forcing the cops that he's with to guess the right answers that you and I as the audience already fucking know. If you took out all the explanation scenes that for scenes that did not need explanations, Mm -hmm. this movie would be 40 minutes long. Maybe. Maybe 30. Like when they're standing in the the room where, where they shot the guys who were like jerking off to the girls, and Willem Dafoe and the cops are like, oh, there's bullet holes here that I just don't know how to explain. It's like, why do I fucking care if you can explain it or not? Like, I'm interested in what happened because I saw what the fuck happened. I don't give a shit. You keep bringing up all of these little details that you almost repress deep down that just bring back memories of like watching this film and being like, why the fuck is this happening? What? What? Are you, why are you walking me through this, holding my hand for the most weird back ass words, back ass ass backwards? backwards. (laughs) Fuck me. Shit. Maddening. Utterly maddening. Same, also maddening was Willem Dafoe's line when he gets woken up by the phone call when he's cuddling in bed with his his boyfriend or whatever. mm -hmm. What the fuck was that? Basically, uh, Willem Dafoe gets a phone of, call being like, hey, we got a murder. Come down to the murder scene. And Willem Dafoe's like, got a, a hunky guy cuddling on his chest that he slaps in the face to get off with of, of him. The guy then says, I'm just trying to cuddle with you. And Willem Dafoe, pardon my French, says, looks at him and in disgust says, don't be a fag. And that's it. That is it. They that is the extent of Willem Dafoe's homosexuality up to up to that point of the film and all the way up to the ending of the film. That's it is not a character trait at all. He is basically made gay in the film to use a slur. Seemingly with an excuse. That's it. Plays no other part in the movie. So wildly uncalled for. Because then I think they use it as an excuse for him to dress up and drag later on when he infiltrates the head Russian mafia boss's house. But like, he doesn't have to be gay to do that. 
like that's the plot of white chicks. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, Unfortunately, yes, I do. You don't have to be like, oh, no, 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 it's cool. He's fucking gay. So he has this dress already and he wears it all the time. It's it's <laughs> cool. It's like, no, if that's the best plan. Where do, do 1955, some like it hot. That's the plot of that movie, too. It's not new. It's 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 like it's like the the writer of the film needed to forgive Willem Dafoe of dressing in drag by saying that he was gay, like he needed to absolve a sin that he was committing in some bizarre fashion. So stupid. Uh, just endless stupid. This film could be described as. It was also infuriatingly tongue in cheek because the film kept addressing the fact that what was happening was dumb. Like when Willem Dafoe at the very beginning of the movie says, these guys aren't professionals. They just got insanely lucky. It's like, yeah, that's exactly true. But then the guys kind of just keep getting lucky. And at almost every crime scene, Willem Dafoe is like, these are not professionals. They're just getting lucky. And they're like, yeah, that's true. We are just getting lucky. And it's like, all right, but just because you acknowledge the fact that this is stupid doesn't forgive you the fact that it's fucking stupid. How is it that you're stupid? Then let's make it not. How is it that you two brothers already have a prayer ritual for when you kill somebody, which you just decided to start doing as a as a profession seemingly two days ago? Hell of a point. This this guy, Troy Duffy, absolutely watched Pulp Fiction and was like. That's that. mine now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to do that. Why? I don't know. Oh, no, no. But it's a family prayer. Oh, so it's a family prayer? So they'd probably say it on, you know, like special occasions like um, Thanksgiving, uh, Christmas, Easter. No, 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 no. They're going to say it when they shoot somebody in the back of the head. Is that common in their family? Yeah, but they don't know that because their dad's an assassin, but they don't know that either. So what? Like uh, what? Just just go with it. Just accept it. It's the way it is. When when they're saying you're the not prayer, here to think, you're here to watch. When when they're saying the prayer, right as the badass assassin dude, which oh my god, also sorry, I, I could literally do this for every single part of the movie. The Please fact do. that that this assassin guy is in a birdcage in front of um, in front of like a parole board is insane. And the fact that he was behind bars for 25 years, apparently that he could get out at the snap of a fingers. Why was he in jail in the first place? For what purpose? Why? Also, you know what prison he's at, but you don't know if he's alive, which was also one of the lines in the movie. Fuck you. That's stupid. That doesn't make any sense. And then he's right where you need him to be like a night, like a day later. So you went from not knowing if he was alive or dead to getting him out of jail to getting him where he needs to be to be an assassin, which he does in the middle of the day with zero conflict. Stupid. They're saying the prayer right as their dad is about to walk in to murder them. And he goes, I know that prayer. That's my dad's prayer. <laughs> and start saying it too. And then they might as well start fucking. <laughs> hated this movie. Uh, I'm happy to be of service. 
when they gave their stupid little sermon at the end of the movie, like in the courthouse, like basically being like, tell your fucking friends, we're here. We run Boston now. Tell your fucking ma, tell your fucking pa. And they kept trading who was saying what lines. I'm like, oh, you dumb idiots rehearsed this, didn't you? It's one thing to be like, oh, we're doing this off the cuff, but you guys are like trading verses like they, like you're the fucking Beastie Boys and you had this shit on lock. This is embarrassing. <laughs> and then and then one of the women, sorry, I hate this movie. One of the women who was trapped in the courthouse comes running out of the courthouse straight into the arms of a crowd of reporters. And the <laughs> reporter looks at her and says, did you just come out of there? What was it like? It's like, no shit, bitch. You watched her walk out of the front door. Where did you think she was? This movie sucked. Can I please pick the sequel? No, fuck you. I will boycott that movie. Ooh, that'd be new. I will watch a different, better movie. I have talked a long time. Do you have things to say about this movie? Oh my God, no. That was perfect, Josh. You perfectly encapsulated what this experience was. Uh, did, at any point, did you think it was going to improve? No. <laughs> no, I did not. It was a very quick, I see, I understand, we're out. When it started off and it like got to the, the Russian guys like storming into the bar i was like okay maybe people like this movie because it's campy and i don't remember that part of it and then it's it's not then the film takes itself extremely seriously to the point where it's it's absolutely not an enjoyable watch um and you kept you keep thinking you're gonna catch up with it like oh okay so they're like irish catholic batman um but the movie keeps going off on weird tangents that like you keep having to collect yourself and be like, oh, wait, which bad guy is this? We- Rocco is doing this. Why? Their dad's here all of a sudden. Like it, it never lets you get on top of it to really grapple with the all of what's going on. It is constantly like churning itself forward. It's a bizarre watch. Uh, highly recommend. Give me your rate. Give me your rating and your final review. Oh man, um, what? I, as far as a review, don't watch it. Just nothing I say is gonna make you like. There's no reason to have an opinion on this film and be discussing it because it's just an automatic. Oh, don't don't ever watch that film. That's it. So zero. Yeah, I've given um, that zeros before. I'll do it again. I I I think the lowest rating you can give a movie on Letterboxd is is a half a star. So I will go. I guess a half a star. Um, it's a bad. It's so it's punishingly bad, and it's not funny because it it's so chaotic. There's I think one part I laughed at when they accidentally blew up the cat. Um. But outside of that, I, I watched that again. <laughs> yeah, no, like I didn't that, believe it the first time. That was funny. And then when Rocco is yelling at his girlfriend, like, I will shoot myself in the head if you could give me if you if you give me the name of that cat. Um, like that little bit was funny. The rest of the movie isn't, though. Like Willem Dafoe's character is very hateful, like uh, uh, reflexive upon gay people. 
the action scenes are honestly terrible. Like they're they're not enjoyable to watch at all. And, and none of the you the honestly ulterior... can't watch them. They're unwatchable the way it's cutting back and forth. Yeah, and and even like the one hand to hand combat scene that could have been kind of cool when that one bad guy and Rocco kind of get into it. Even that wasn't a very satisfying watch. It wasn't framed particularly well. It wasn't choreographed particularly well. It was it wasn't edited like it, it's not a satisfying watch, and it's not quite crazy enough to jump the shark into being um, enjoyable. It it's really just bad. It is also wild because this film from a crowd perspective is positively reviewed. If you go to the IMDb page of this film, you'll see it has a 44 meta score, which is quite bad. And a 7.7 audience score. Like people like this movie, which is mind boggling because I think I am more hateful of gay people for having sat through the entirety of it. That's that's not something you want to have with your audience. That's unfortunate. Yeah, that's the for goal. reference. Um, also, just to double down on this, Rotten Tomatoes, twenty-seven percent on the tomato meter, ninety-one percent audience score. What with two hundred fifty thousand plus ratings? That's a fucking farce. It's a. I know. It's a. It's a bad, bad movie. I, I I I keep seeing like posters that have elements of this. I I could keep talking about all the stupid shit in this movie for another forty five minutes, but let's stop ourselves here. Okay. Okay. Corwin Heller, let's get into it. Next week's picks. What do you got? I'm gonna go with Pearl. Oh, I'm so happy you picked this. I was worried this was what uh, you picked. No, it's not. This is great because I picked another horror film so we can double down on our contemporary horror for Halloween. Okay, that works out well. Yes, I went with the uh, it just came out. I want to say today as we're recording this, which is October 7th, the 2022 remake of Hellraiser just currently available on Hulu. Have you seen the first? I imagine you have. I have. And that's why I'm so I actually started watching or I, I turned it on today and got past like the first um, production company logo. And then I was like, you know what? No, this would make a really interesting discussion because the original is very surrealist. And I'm so curious about how they how they make it work with even better contemporary visual effects, because um, I think this type of film lends itself to good effects so well so i'm very curious how it goes have you seen the original if not should i watch it before i view it now mm, uh no going cold okay sold it's a random guess i, I don't know either all right, cool. So two contemporary horror films. We have 2022's Pearl, which is a follow-up to last year's film X, and the remake of Hellraiser, which is currently available on Hulu. I didn't realize it was a prequel or a sequel. It is a prequel, I believe. I assume I need to watch X. Uh, it's a prequel. I wouldn't think you'd have to. I suppose. 
X is a good movie, though. Like, I, I have seen it. It is good. Mia Goth is good in it. Kid Cudi is good in it. It's a good Kid Cudi acting performance. You should. All right. Um, all right. Well, those are the movies for the next time around. So check them out before we record or do not. Your prerogative. If you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at uh, Big Screen Juice. If you'd like to follow Core Run on Twitter, you can do so at Core Heller. If you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. If you'd like to send emails to the show, recommend movies, tell us know your thoughts, whatever, you can do so at Juice in the Big Screen at gmail.com. And until next time, y'all have a good one. Bye. Hey.